Father, we thank you that your word has the power to challenge us, to uh, convict us, uh, but also to comfort us and change us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that this evening you would do all that in our hearts. Help us wherever we stand with you, whatever our circumstances. Pray that through studying your word, you would, by your Holy Spirit, draw us to trust afresh in Jesus so that we may live for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've had a little break from Proverbs over the last few weeks, if you've been with us. Uh, But we're back now on this journey, remember, through uh, Proverbs chapters 1 to 9. Proverbs is taking us on a journey, the journey through life. The goal is life with God that lasts forever. But there are all kinds of voices on the way along that journey, a path which are calling us and, and, and tempting us to go astray from that path. And maybe surprisingly, maybe unsurprisingly, Solomon turns with his son that he's addressing in these introductory chapters to the issue of sexual faithfulness. And on the surface of things, people might say, well, look, here you go again, you Christians. You're just obsessed with sex, aren't you? You can't stop talking about it. So uh, Richard Dawkins describes God's people in the Old Testament like this. He says, they're a tribal cult of a single fiercely unpleasant God, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions, with a smell of charred flesh, with his own superiority over rival gods, and with the exclusiveness of his chosen desert tribe. He doesn't mince his words, does he? But there's a lot in there. But he's saying something that a lot of people would say. You know, you, you, you Christians, you get so hung up about sex. What's the big deal? Just relax. The singer Katy Perry put it like this in an interview a, a few years ago. She said, I, I think when you put sex and spirituality in the same bottle and shake it up, bad things happen. In other words, she's saying, keep sex away from religion. But is it really fair to say that Christians are the ones who are uh, unhelpfully obsessed with sex in contrast to the culture? What do films like the Fifty Shades of Grey series and uh, TV series like Game of Thrones tell us? I haven't watched them, but I'm told they contain scenes that would never have been put on general release even 20 years ago, but are now regarded as mainstream, normal sort of thing to be watching on TV and at the movies. And yet alongside that, put all the recent headlines, the ones about sexual abuse in charities, in the church, in the entertainment industry, the Me Too campaign. What do these things tell us? They they, they tell us surely that, that our world is broken, deeply broken in the area of sex and relationships. And that brokenness and confusion runs through every human being, Christian, non-Christian, including each of us here, you and me. So as we approach these chapters of Proverbs, we will no doubt do so with a whole range of feelings and thoughts. Maybe we've been the victim of some of these things in these chapters, sinned against, cheated on. Maybe we've been the one in the wrong. We've done things that we regret. 
We've made unwise choices. Maybe we're living today with the consequences of those choices. Or perhaps we're living today with the consequences of the choices of our parents or others in our lives in the past. It's extremely unlikely that any of us can say that we're untouched or unmoved by sexual sin or infidelity, either in ourselves or in our wider families and those we love. Now, there's a story I've I've heard about a guy who's visiting Ireland. I don't know why it's Ireland. No offence to anyone who's Irish. But uh, he's a visitor to the country, and he's driving out in the countryside, and he's trying to get to Dublin, and he gets completely lost. And in the middle of nowhere, he comes across an old man walking down a tiny country road. And he says, I'm lost. Can you help me get to Dublin? And the man stares at him long and hard and he takes a deep breath and he whistles to himself and he looks away and finally he looks back at him and he says, and I won't try the accent, he says, you want to get to Dublin, do you? Well, here's the thing, I wouldn't start from here. (laughs) As we listen in to Solomon talking to his young son, we're going to be talking about Adultery, about relationships with non-Christians, about pornography, about sexual temptation in general. And for some of us, it may feel like we're being told, I wouldn't start from here, because life looks very different if you're looking back with regret on past mistakes or hurts. It might feel then that the warnings we read in these chapters are not what you need to hear. I don't need more warning, I need help, I need grace, we might think. But here is, the point is, here is Solomon at this point with his young son who has all his life ahead of him. And so what he says is going to be different from what we might say after we've fallen into sin or temptation or when we're living with the results of mistakes or hurt. So as we go into this, we would do well to remember the words of hope that Paul speaks to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's on the front of the service sheet, or a bit of it is. He says, first of all, he says these words, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we hear that and we think, hang on a minute, there's not much hope there, is there? But keep listening. He says, that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, the gospel, the good news, is that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus has a fresh start, slate wiped clean, even for sexual sin. That is why he died. So if it feels like these words condemn us today, let me encourage us, each of us, to come to Christ. To come to him for grace and life. He died for sinners. He died for you and he died for me. But let's sit with Solomon and hear him as he sits down with his son and he says, in effect, when you think about it, son, don't do what I did. Because remember, Solomon was, was known most of all <clears throat> excuse me, for two big choices that he made. His choice of wisdom, when God told him to ask for anything he wanted, he chose to ask for wisdom. 
But then later, his choice of wife or wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And though the mind boggles at how he ever got anything done, you can imagine the weekly conversations about the diary, the, the real issue was not the number of wives, not the number of them, but their foreignness. If you look at 1 Kings 11, I'll read it to you. 1 Kings 11, verse 2, his wives were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And then we read in the next couple of verses that Solomon didn't listen and his wives led him astray. So that's all there in the background as we come to our first heading, which is on the the yellow sheet. You can follow there on the back with these three portraits in these chapters. First, a portrait of a foreign woman. We're not going to sort of go through these chapters verse by verse. We're going to pick out these these portraits. A foreign woman. Look at the warning in verse 3. The lips of an adulteress drip honey. Now, who is this adulteress? We've, we've heard about her before in Proverbs. In many ways, she's Lady Wisdom's rival. Remember Lady Wisdom in chapter 1, crying out in the streets, listen to me and you will avoid calamity and live in safety. Here is Lady Folly, you might call her, issuing her own invitation. But it's an invitation to an evening that ends in the grave. The word that's translated adulteress in verse 3 is quite hard to translate with a single word in English. She has a husband, chapter 7, verse 19, if you look. So she is seeking to commit adultery, but that word also means foreign woman. She's like the foreign women that Solomon himself married and who led to his downfall. She's an unfaithful pagan woman. And Solomon is warning his son, don't go near this foreign woman. Now again, we need to be careful not to mishear this. You might think, well, why pick on the woman here and make her out to be the source of all the son's future problems? But it's quite clear that Solomon doesn't think this is all one-sided. We'll come on to the foolish man in a moment. But more than that, again, this is Solomon instructing his son about the temptations that he needs to look out for, the form that temptation will take in his life. He's saying, son, you you may meet someone who promises you the world. Her speech will be smooth. Chapter 5, verse 3, chapter 7, verse 21. That's a big thing. It keeps coming up again, the seductive speech. She will make the most amazing promises. So chapter 7, verse 15, if you look... I came out to meet you. I looked for you. I have found you. You are the one. You are my only one, which she's kind of saying, provided we conveniently forget the husband who's not at home. And she makes an invitation. Verse 18, you know, come on, let's just have some fun. No one's going to get hurt. Let's just enjoy ourselves and we can worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Solomon is saying, son, when you meet someone like that, beware. Don't be taken in. This will end in disaster. Now, what does avoiding the foreign woman or indeed the foreign man look like in 21st century Britain for us today? See, clearly this is a warning, first of all, against adultery, against sex outside marriage. Proverbs talks about the seductive speech of that woman. What does that seductive speech look like today? 
We, we might hear it from others or we might say it ourselves. It's things like this, you know, she understands me in a way that my wife never has. Oh, he values me for who I am, unlike my husband. Oh, it was just a kiss. It's just one night. It's just a bit of harmless fun. It's just a bit of a sort of experimenting. That's pretty much what's going on here in Proverbs 2 with that kind of speech. Don't be fooled, says Solomon. Don't think you're the only one in history who will get away with this. It will end in disaster. Verse 27, her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. So that's adultery. Then then remember Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount that actually adultery begins in the mind, in the heart. It begins with lust. It's about our thought lives. It's about fantasies. And for many today that would take the form of the temptations of pornography which again seems to offer a harmless release, free from consequences. That's his seductive appeal. No one's getting hurt, people say. What's the problem? The statistics, I think, are startling. They say that that one in two Christian men and one in five Christian women admit to being addicted to pornography. This is a real issue, isn't it? Countless people, men and women, will speak of how pornography has messed up their view of sex. It can ruin marriages. And that's before you begin to consider the exploitation that is going on of the real men and women who feature in the images. If you're committed to social justice, I heard someone say recently, there's at least one tangible thing you can do immediately. Stop looking at porn right now and forever and persuade as many other people to stop as well. What then about the foreignness of this person back in Proverbs? For for Christians, the foreign man or woman isn't someone from a different country or background. It's more simply someone who isn't a Christian. That can be controversial for some, but Paul puts it clearly in 1 Corinthians 7. When a Christian marries, they must marry somebody who is in the Lord. What would the seductive speech look like? In this case, it might go something like this. Oh, I've met this guy and actually he's brilliant and he says he really values my faith and he encourages me to go to church and actually he's more encouraging of my faith than lots of Christians that I know. And there aren't enough dateable Christian men or women around and so the speech goes on. But it is seductive speech. It is half the truth because the end point of that relationship will be one where two people come together who have fundamentally different beliefs about the goal of life, their ultimate desires for their children, how to spend their money, how to spend their time, and heading ultimately for two different destinations in eternity. Now, I know there will be people for whom this is a live issue right now, and it might feel like this is just saying, I wouldn't start from here. People can end up married to non-Christians for a number of reasons. It might be that you come to faith after marriage or that you're poorly advised by others or it could, be there was a, it could be that there was a decision that you made that you need to confess to God and ask for his forgiveness. But this was a situation the early church faced a lot where people came to faith um, after they got married. And again, Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians that, that marriage is marriage. Whoever you are, however you got to this point in your life, you're called to stick with your marriage and persevere in it. 
But Solomon is again looking ahead with his son. And he says, don't go there. Yes, there is grace, there is forgiveness, there are even miracles where we have messed up in the past. But one or two stories of non-Christian spouses coming to faith don't outweigh the many hundreds and thousands of stories of Christians who've ended up falling away from faith because their heart's been captured by an unbeliever. If you're looking forward, if it's not yet too late, don't go there. That is the foreign woman. But the fault in chapters 5 to 7 does not all lie with her. There is secondly the foolish man. What is Solomon's instruction to his son? It's very simple. Steer clear. Chapter 5, verse 8. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Do you get the point? It's not kind of, well, feel free to dabble a little. See how things go. Then I'll be here for you to pick up the pieces when you get your fingers burnt and so on. It's far more stark. Run. Don't walk. Run in the opposite direction. Think how we tend to put things in our hearts. The question we want the answer to is, how far can I go before I'm doing something wrong? It's a common question you get in question boxes in youth groups. How far can I go with my girlfriend? That kind of thing. But actually, we all think like that in different ways, I think. You know, the the, the married man says, yeah, well, there's this girl at work, and she's really attractive. It's okay just to enjoy that, isn't it? You know, just to sort of celebrate that a bit. We're just having a business lunch together by ourselves. It's okay. Just enjoying it. We're just exchanging text messages every so often. We're just hanging out a bit more than is actually necessary. Or the single person says, well, I know this guy isn't right for for marriage. You know, faith-wise, he's nowhere, really. He's on a completely different page from me. It's not a sin to date, is it? Where does the Bible say I can't do that? And the thing is, it may not be a sin in and of itself, go out for a meal with somebody or whatever it is, but Proverbs would say, is it wise? Where is that road that you are on heading? It's like the story of a a rich man who wants to hire a chauffeur for his fancy car and he takes two candidates to the top of a cliff with the car and he says show me how well you can drive my car near the edge of this cliff and the first driver takes the car as close as he can to the edge and he carefully skirts around the gaps and negotiates everything and he keeps the car safe demonstrating his extraordinary skill the second driver gets in the car and keeps it constantly 10 meters from the cliff edge and keeps it safe Now, which driver gets hired? Well, it's the second one, because he's the one who's who's far more likely in the long run to keep the car safe. Why get as close as you can to the cliff edge when one false move will end in disaster? It's all it would take. So that is why Solomon says to his son, do not go near the door of her house. In chapter 6, which we didn't read, Solomon puts it differently. He says, verse 27, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? We would say you're playing with fire. Right now, you're probably fine. 
But what makes you think that you're going to be different from the thousand, millions of others who've done what you're doing right now and ended in disaster with marriages ruined or even falling away from faith? In chapter 7, we see this portrait of the foolish young man doing what, his, doing what his father's told him not to do, going down the street near her corner, verse 8, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. The implication is clear. That is a bad time of day to be wandering along the road. And so if there are particular circumstances that can trigger temptation for you, Stay away from them. What might those temptations be? Well, it might be using a computer late at night if pornography is your temptation. Get someone to stop the internet from working after 10 p.m. It might be realising that spending time with a particular person one-to-one is just not sensible. It might be choosing to end a relationship when it becomes clear that marriage is not an option. Solomon gives a couple of other warnings too. He says in chapter 5, verse 9, Why give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel? Don't throw your life away. Don't get to the end of your life and look back and think, what a fool I've been. You will say, verse 12, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurns correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the assembly. Man or woman, don't be like this foolish man. Steer clear of temptation. But then thirdly and finally, there is another portrait. A positive one after the negatives of the foreign woman and foolish man. A faithful life. A faithful life. Chapter 5, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. He says, verse 18, embrace faithfulness and and honour sex as a good thing that God created for marriage between a man and a woman. It's important to hear these verses because often the Christian view of sex and relationships is presented as, here's a sweet shop full of delicious treats and chocolates and every sweet thing you could possibly desire. And everyone out there in the world is allowed to eat as much as they like. Whatever they fancy is often that they they want. But you, Christian, you need to sit in the corner with one single jelly baby. One at the most, if you're lucky. And choose carefully because it's all you're having. It's the kind of monogamy is monotony point of view. And if we buy into that and we believe it, we will be miserable whether we're single or married. What Christians need to realise is that when God says that the appropriate place for sex is in a, a marriage between a man and a woman, he knew what he was doing. Christians need to realise that God is saying to us, you can have all the sweets in the shop. You can have anything in the shop. But listen very carefully here, because the sweets that he's promising us, the blessings promised are not found merely in marriage they're promised to us in Christ every spiritual blessing is found in him so even the best marriage involves two 
sinners. It will never totally satisfy our deepest needs for intimacy, for real relationship without fear. But that's because marriage is designed to point beyond itself to a relationship that is open to any human being, married or single, knowing Christ for eternity. Remember what Paul says when he talks about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament. He's talking about marriage and then he says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's what it's pointing to. That's what it's about. So if we're married, look at what this is saying. It's saying rejoice in one another. Choose to do that. It's striking how the word rejoice in the Bible is so often a command. You know, yes, to perhaps today you feel a little disgruntled over whatever disagreement is getting you down, but you are commanded to rejoice in your wife, your husband. You are to cherish one another, to let love cover over a multitude of sins, delight in the wife or the husband of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love, he says to his son. Do you see that word captivated comes again in the next verse. If you look, verse 20, why be captivated by the adulteress? We're all going to be captivated by something. That's the point. And the greatest defense against adultery for those who are married is to work hard at marital intimacy so we're captivated instead by one another. But where does that leave those who are not married, especially those who are single but perhaps would love to be married. We see we are, in the end, all called not, first of all, to marriage, but we're called to something even more fundamental, which is to faithfulness, to contentment in Christ. And it may be helpful for single people to realise that actually married people can struggle with these issues just as much. Marriage doesn't solve our problems. If anything, it it simply replaces one set of temptations and struggles with a different set. And that's not because there's a problem with marriage. It's because there's a problem right here in our hearts. We're sinners. What ultimately makes us fall into sexual sin? What makes us pursue inappropriate relationships with non-Christians or view pornography or whatever it is? Is it not in the end about whether we're willing to say Jesus is enough? He is the one to whom Lady Wisdom points in Proverbs. And so if I have Christ, I have everything. Every spiritual blessing that God can give me. He's given me everything, every sweet in the shop. And I'm heading in eternity for the deepest, most intimate relationship with him. Which will surpass the intimacy of any human marriage. So let's not settle for second best. Let's hear the warning here and see the emptiness, the folly, the stupidity, the the, the plain disobedience of flirting with adultery, of pursuing non-Christian partners and inappropriate relationships, of permitting our hearts to dwell in lust, of dallying with pornography. See, these are ugly things. They will end in disaster. But as we finish, I want to say that opening verse again. Remember, Paul is talking about that list of sexual sins and sinners, and he says, that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God.
Maybe there's something that we need to address in the light of today, to turn from in repentance. Maybe there's something we need to talk through with somebody. Very happy to, to do that. Andy is as well, or we'd be very happy to find somebody more appropriate if, if needed who you might be able to talk to. Maybe we need simply to remember the gospel. Our world is deeply scarred and messed up by sin, and so are we in the ways we've considered this morning. But we have a saviour this evening, beg your pardon. But we have a saviour. He came into the world to save sinners. And he is worth treasuring and delighting today and always. Let's have a pause to, to reflect on what we've been thinking about and our own response to this in our hearts. And I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness in warning us about what the world is like, about what wisdom looks like, in particular in this area of sex and relationships. Help us to be wise. Where there are ways in which we have fallen short, we confess and we bring them before you. We put them at the at the foot of the cross, we come to Christ knowing that it was for our sin that he died and suffered and rose from the dead. And help us then to order our lives so that we are seeking wisdom, seeking Christ first and foremost. So that we're able to say, if I have Jesus, I have everything. He is enough. Help us, whatever our circumstances, to say that wholeheartedly with joy. And I pray for anyone here this evening who's yet to put their trust in Jesus for themselves. I pray that they too would be able to do that. And find that joy of knowing Christ forever into eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.